Welcome to Mercy House. Uh, again, my name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor. Glad that uh, you guys are here. We're, I think, in the fourth week of a sermon series that's uh, going through the Gospel of John. And as you open the first few chapters, you start to realize uh, John is wanting us to, to, to understand what it means to believe. And you see that in the opening, opening chapters, first few verses. He's, he's saying things like, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. By the end of the book, around chapter 20, he's saying, I wrote all these things so that you may believe. He's very clear. The reason that he's writing his gospel is so that people would believe. Now, question is, what does that mean? I think there's some confusion about having faith or having belief in our culture and in the church. Uh, in our culture, belief, our faith is something like the Red Sox slogan, believe, right? This started in the early 2000s when they, they won the uh, World Series and they uh, were, were, you know, up against the, the New York Yankees and they lost the first games, and then they were going to have the last game, and then they won the last game, and then they were in it again, and, they, and so out of that came this slogan, believe, right? And the idea was this, if enough Red Sox fans would hover around their television, and as the Red Sox are playing, it, it, irregardless of the curse of the Bambino, if you just believe, and enough people believe, the Red Sox will win, and indeed they did. And that sort of propped up that idea of belief in belief, right? Faith in faith, right? That's not what John's talking about. Now, in the church, uh, sometimes we think about, when we think about, um, I need to believe, we think about intellectual assent or agreement to some doctrinal truth. That, okay, Jesus is this, he did this, this is why he did it. Check, 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 check. I believe all that, therefore... I'm a Christian. It certainly includes that, but it's more than that. It's more than that. And we find that in this passage. Uh, and we find it in a conversation. It's kind of interesting. It's not like Jesus sitting down, giving us a 10-point teaching time. Um, it's in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And so we're going to look at that. And through this, I think we're going to get a better sense of what is true belief. What's biblical belief or faith? So take a look in, in your Bible there. There's Bibles underneath the chairs, uh, Bible on your phone probably, but it won't be on the, on the screen. The, the, if it's in, from chapter 3, it's not going to be on the screen. You need to look along with me. So John chapter 3, and here's what we're going we're gonna to find out uh, as, as we look at this is how does this true belief, how does this come about? Uh, we're going to find out what is it that I need to believe, and we're going to find out what is the result of true belief, right? So if I have true belief, what will be the fruit of that? What will be the result of that? So those, those three questions, we're going we're gonna to explore those three questions. How does this true belief come about? What is it that I'm actually believing? And what is the result of true belief, right? So John 3, verse 1, we get introduced to Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
So Nicodemus, he's kind of a big deal, okay? He's a Pharisee. Uh, it's a religious sect of the day. They were, some, they were some significant power brokers in the religious life of Israel. They were very devout. They were very committed. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards, the Old Testament. They were very committed to making sure that everybody could have access to the Bible and to teachings of the Bible. They came up with this idea of called a synagogue so that they didn't, people didn't just have to come to the temple in one location to get uh, scripture taught to them, but they could go to some, uh, some other locations called synagogues where they could get the word. And so ordinary people could, could have the word on a regular basis. Um, he's not only a Pharisee, but he is part of the ruling elders. Right? He's, he's a Jewish ruler. Well, what that means is he's part of a, a select group of 70 rulers that have power both in the civil government and the religious life of the nation. And so not only is he a Pharisee, but he's also a ruler. He's got some power. And he would have been educated. He would have been sort of like a PhD in theology in order to be a part of that group of 70 ruling elders. So this is a really big moment because he's showing up to have this conversation with Jesus. Now, it is at night, um, so that's kind of interesting. He, he didn't necessarily want people to see that he's there, but, but he, when he gets to Jesus, he says, we... So he's representing the ruling elders, at least some of them. We think you're a teacher from God. That's a pretty awesome seal of approval. Wouldn't you agree? Right? Like these are like the religious experts, the people in power, and they seem, at least some of them are saying, Jesus, because of these miracles you're, you're, you're doing, these signs, as John calls them, we think you're a teacher that has some kind of divine authority. That's, 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 that's pretty good news. Like Some of the people in power are beginning to, to, to wake up to the significance of Jesus' ministry. Well, I wonder how Jesus is going to respond. Verse 3, here's how he responds. He answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't seem to be all that impressed with Nicodemus' seal of approval. Evidently, believing that Jesus is a good teacher that has some sort of divine authority, evidently that's not all there is to believe about Jesus. And so Jesus does this thing where the expert who's giving the seal of approval to Jesus, he turns the tables and he now takes the expert and puts him not just outside the kingdom, but he says, you can't even see the kingdom, much less be in it, unless you're born again. Now, you may have heard that terminology, talking about Christians, right? born-again Christians. Are they born again? Are they not born again? That kind of thing. That's where this comes from. That comes from this text. I think oftentimes people don't really know what that means. It's like a little tagline. So my hope is that... Bef- after you, you leave this place, you, you, you're going to know what this whole idea of born again, what that means. And Nicodemus hears that, and like a good academic, he pushes back on that analogy, right? And so verse 4, he says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Good point, Nicodemus, right? One point, Jesus, one point, Nicodemus, right? And I I think Jesus is enjoying this. 
I do. I, I think he, he is going back and forth with somebody who is at, at a level of biblical knowledge that is not like talking to Peter, okay? <laughs> I mean, Peter's great. Had a lot of things happen you know, through his, his ministry. But Nicodemus, he knows that Bible. <laughs> and so they, they start sparring. And I, and I think there's a little glint in Jesus' eye. He's like, it's on. Let's go. And Nicodemus just pushes right back, pushes, pushes the analogy, right? And, and so it's, a, it's some great questions there, right? It's like, okay, so how can I, a grown man, and this is a picture from, from I don't know if you've seen this. This is pretty wild. This, this baby's still in the amniotic sac, right? Don't show it too long. They'll start grossing out. Nicodemus is like, okay, so how are you going to zip me up back in the amniotic sac, and put the umbilical cord back in my belly button and put me back inside my mom. How are you going to do that? Because that's the only way that, according to your analogy, I can enter the kingdom of heaven, is that I have to be born again. And Jesus is like, let me explain, right? So he explains. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So Jesus pushes back. He says, okay, I'm using an earthly illustration, a common experience that you know about to explain invisible experience, spiritual truth, right? Spiritual experience. It's an illustration. It's a parable, right? And he's using birth to describe what it's like to go from outside of the kingdom to, to go to inside the kingdom. And he says, it's like being born. Now think about it. Being born, you go from absolute darkness to, to light. Right? You, you go from seeing nothing right, to seeing the world. You go from not taking breath into your lungs to <gasps> taking breath into your lungs. You go from not really relating to any other humans. I mean, you're sort of relating with your mom, but you're not really, right, to relating to your mom and your dad, and, and your siblings, and uncle so-and-so, and all of a sudden, these, this whole world of relationships opens up when you're born. Jesus is saying, that's what it's like when you are born into the kingdom of God, right? He's using, he's using birth as an analogy. So, so how, does, how does this thing come about? What, what is it that has to be believed so this can come about, right? This starts bringing some questions uh, to mind, and he's revealing that when he says you got to be born of the water and you got to be born of the Spirit. Water and the Spirit. That's, that's his initial explanation to Nicodemus. This is what I'm talking about. This is what it is to be born again, to be born into the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? Well, let's start with the first part, the water. What is that? Different, different church traditions explain this differently. I, I think it's pretty obvious in the text. Um, 
But some, some would say, well, it's like the water breaking before labor. So it's like physical birth, spiritual birth, water, spirit. You got to be born physically first, then you'd be born spiritually. Uh, problem with that is, is the ancient world didn't really talk like that. We talk like that as, as modern people, talk about water breaking, but that wasn't really in the vernacular of the ancient world. And so it doesn't really make sense that Jesus would say that. So other traditions that would, would say, well, it means uh, a baptism. You got to be baptized, and then you got to be, be supernaturally uh, regenerated to be in the kingdom, to be in Christ. Um, the problem with that is Nicodemus has no concept of Christian baptism. So I would say it's a pretty poor reading of the text to say that this is speaking to you must be baptized in order to be saved. And, and there's, there's certainly some churches that would say it's through baptism that you sort of enter into a relationship with God. And those would be more sacramental type churches, Lutheran, Catholic, Episcopal, Methodist, uh, congregational to a degree, and, and they would point to this text. I, I don't think that's a, a good treatment of the text. Right? So what is he talking about? I think what he's talking about is the baptism of John the Baptist, which Nicodemus knows a lot about. And it's being spoken of in the first three chapters a whole lot. Right? John the Baptist is a pretty central figure in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John. And his baptism is discussed in that. Now, what was the baptism of John the Baptist? Baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism that communicated that the person realized they were a sinner and they were in need of the, the coming Messiah to save them from that sin. And so he's letting Nicodemus know, this is what you have to believe that you're a sinner and you're in need of a Savior. Right? And that answers one of our, one of our questions. Um, he's also saying that you have to be baptized by the Spirit. That when one comes to believe in this truth that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you come by that belief via supernatural intervention into your life. You have to be awakened by God and the grace of God in order to even acknowledge that you are a sinner and you are in need of a Savior and that you truly believe that Jesus is that Savior. That's not going to happen unless God regenerates our hearts. So you have to be baptized both by the water, meaning you've got to acknowledge sin and acknowledge your need for a Savior and the Spirit, which means God's got to do a supernatural work in your, in your life. Uh, you may be asking yourself, well, how do I know that the, the Spirit is actually working on me? How do I know that? Well, partly is that you're actually acknowledging sin <laughs> and on, honestly acknowledging the need for a Savior. Human beings don't typically do that unless they're being acted on by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not really our default as human beings. We don't come out you know, as human beings saying, man, I just want to acknowledge my sin. <laughs> no, we want to hide our sin. Right? And so when, when we're able to reveal that sin, to confess that sin and that need for a Savior that we ourselves cannot save ourselves from that sin, that is a work of God's 
Holy Spirit. I've had these interesting conversations with a, a few church folks around this valley uh, in some of these churches that have long since left the belief that they need the death of Christ to forgive their sins. They now are saying, well, you know, Jesus is being an example and we should follow his example. And that's what they say is, is Christianity. And their churches, for the most part, are dying. And so they're older folks mostly. Their churches are dying. Uh, they have a big endowment that they pay the bills with, and they're kind of scratching their head going, why isn't anyone coming to our church? And so when I'm having conversations with a few of these folks, and they find out there's people coming to your church, and they're all between 18 and 35 for the most part. They go, why are those people coming to your church? Is it because of the music? I go, well, we got, we got good music. I, yeah, I, I like the music. I don't think that's the only reason they're coming. Do you feed them? <laughs> and they do look at me like that. Like, what kind of tricks are you using to get those young people to come to church? I'm like, we do feed them. Like, we, we sugar them up. We got caffeine. We, we, you know, absolutely. They need it, right? It's morning time. And they're like, but I'm like, I don't think that's the only reason they're coming. Well, why are they coming? Like, well, because I'm telling them, they're sinners, and they need a Savior. And they're like, no, 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 no. No way. Young people coming to hear that? I'm like, yeah. And then they come back the next week, and they bring their friend. <laughs> That's a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit that, that you would acknowledge sin and a need for a Savior, especially in this context. There's no church culture propping this thing up. If anything, when you come to believe that you're a sinner and you need a Savior, you're going to lose points, right? You're going to lose cultural points. People are going to go, what? You're going to church? Why? Right? They're going to look down on you. They're going to mock you. Some of you are in academic settings. You, you just let out the, the, the one little word about you being a Christian and the whole room changes like that. So that the fact that you would, would be acknowledging sin and the need of a Savior, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way that we can sincerely acknowledge that, being born both of water and the Spirit. So how, how's Nicodemus doing? Verse 9, <laughs> he says to Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet? You do not understand these things? I, I love that moment. <laughs> Nicodemus is coming in. He's like the expert, PhD, and Jesus turns the table, and he's like, you know, I tried to like start with kindergarten with you, and you didn't get that. How are you ever going to get that? Now, now, Jesus knows. This is supernaturally discerned. Like, like the Spirit of God will have to work on him for him to understand this and receive it by faith. And so he pushes on Nicodemus a little bit, and, and then he doesn't leave him in the lurch. Like, he starts to teach him. He starts to reveal more truth to him. And so again, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So he, he lets Nicodemus know that he himself, Jesus, is the Messiah. He does that by using the tagline, Son of Man. Son of Man points to his humanity. It also points to the reality of him being the Messiah, and he lets him know that he is a Messiah who has come down from heaven. So not only is he a human, he is divine. And so he gives him a little Christological lesson right there in about two statements. He's fully God and he's fully human. And the reason he's here is to become a snake on a pole. What? (laughs) He gives us a brief allusion to an Old Testament story that Nicodemus knows well from Numbers 21. And, And it's a story that if you've ever read it, you probably just glossed over it and you're like, I don't ever want to read that story again. It's horrible, right? From Numbers 21, the situation is that that the people have spoken against God and against Moses, and it says, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Okay, that's typical, right? They're like rebelling against Moses, the one that God's placed in authority over them. They're rebelling against God, and they're complaining, and they're saying, why did you take us out of slavery in Egypt? Man, slavery was awesome. Slavery was the good old days, Right? And that's just sort of their typical thing. We do the same thing, right? We do the same thing. Man, I just could just go back to those, those older days. But, you're, you know, your memory is quite a, little, a bit too nostalgic, right? And, and so they're rebelling against God and against Moses, the one that God's placed in authority over them. God's response to that, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Right? That's one of those stories you read it in your quiet time. You're just like, I think I'm going to skip on over to Galatians. You know, like, what am I going to do with that? Well, the rest of the story, the way it plays out, the people come to Moses like normal. Like, they're like, oh, we know we're under judgment because of sin. And would you intercede for us? Would you pray and be our intercessor and ask God to have mercy on us, which they've done before and it's worked? Moses has been able to do that. And so Moses goes to God in prayer and he asks for that. And God gives him an interesting answer. Uh, Numbers 21, uh, verse 8 says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So he says, okay, Moses, you're not going to be the intercessor for this problem. The intercessor for this problem is going to be a bronze snake on a pole. You're going to hold that thing up and you're going to tell people, this is your intercessor. This is the one, this is the go between, between you and God. This is the one that can take care of the judgment that you're receiving because of your sin that you deserve. And if you gaze at it, not glance at it, gaze at it, you'll be healed. And I don't know about you, but... I, I'm, I, I don't like snakes, okay? I know there's probably somebody in here who loves reptiles, and you're like, really? I hate them, okay? And I hate them because I grew up in a warm climate, and there were venomous snakes, and if it's summertime, you're like looking around going, is there a snake? Is there a snake? I, I, I can't imagine the kind of fear of waking up in the morning looking under the couch cushion. Is there a snake? 
And that these snakes are venomous. These snakes are biting you. You are dying. Your kids are dying. Like, this is, this is a horrific judgment. And so to, to, to be crying out to God for help, absolutely, right? And for God to say, All right, you, what you got to do is you got to gaze at the very thing that's killing you, which is a snake. Gaze at that, and that will heal you. You're like, what? What is that? I'm sure the rabbis throughout the, the decades are, are just going like, God, what were you thinking? Like, they were like anti-image and, and bowing down any kind of image. Like, like it, makes, it makes no sense. It makes no sense until this moment when Nicodemus and Jesus says, I'm the snake. I'm the bronze serpent. That story was pointing forward to me. The only uh, remedy for the snake bite of sin is the cross. See, Jesus is going to be raised up on a pole as well. He's going to be dying a death. And those that want to have freedom from the consequence of sin, which is death, are going to look at the very thing that's killing them, death itself in the crucifixion. And if they gaze at that, they believe in that, then they will have the remedy for that sin sickness. Jesus is preaching the gospel to Nicodemus. And he's preaching it in a way that that he understands. It hits him right in the heart. Nicodemus eventually does become a believer in Christ. The next verse that is really John's commentary on on those first 15 verses um, is a verse you know well. You just probably didn't know the context. John 3.16. So John says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see what I'm talking about? Like, belief. That's, that's what John is calling forth from his reader And he's saying this snake story is pointing to the greater story. And the greater story is that Christ is being offered as the remedy to sin and that everyone's snake bitten by sin, right? All are condemned. Jesus doesn't have to show up and go, you're condemned. No, you're already condemned because of sinning against God. And there's no remedy. There's no remedy except one. And that is what Christ is providing through his death on the cross. And he's doing that so that we don't have to perish, right? Be eternally separated from God, to be dead. We don't have to do that. We can be rescued. There's a remedy for that. And that is what Christ does on the cross. Uh, There is no ritual. There is no moral system. There is no mystical pathway that is a remedy to this sin sickness. Those things are like a Band-Aid. You think about that? You get bit by a venomous snake, and you got two little, little puncture wounds there, and you look at it, and you go, oh, that's not that big a deal. I'll just slap a Band-Aid on that. I'm good. No! You need to get to the emergency room now. You, you need the antidote to whatever that venom is. Right? Like, there's one remedy and it, it's not ritual systems, it's, it's not mystical experiences, it's not moral living, it's the cross of Christ. It's the only remedy. 
That's the one that can cure us from the, the sickness of sin. John reemphasizes in the next verses the, 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 the need to, to, to confess that sin and, and the, the need of a Savior. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He, he, he's saying that part of being converted, part of being born again is the willingness to admit sin, to bring it out into the light. That's something that, that God's Holy Spirit brings about in us. And that's very counterintuitive to us sinful humans. We, if you're a sinner, you're a hider. You want to hide it. You don't want to re- reveal it. You don't want to confess it, right? Um, I took my daughter, Kayla, a few years back. We went to the Dominican Republic with the, the team that was uh, from Mercy House, and we were having a great time. We were in the middle of this uh, informal settlement, and there was lots of little... Uh, kind of makeshift houses and raw sewage and dogs and cats running around and lots of feces and human and otherwise and pretty, pretty dirty place, lots of microbes. And my daughter gashes her leg open. And here we are standing in the middle of this not so sanitary place, right? And, and it scared her. And, uh, and she was, you know, first inclination was, you cover it up, you hide it. It's what you do when you get cut, right? You think, oh, I'm good. I don't, I don't need any help. I'm good. And you cover it, right? But there was a doctor and a nurse on our team, thankfully. And they're like, no, 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 let me see it. Let me see it. Let me look at it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big gash. And so she brings it out into the light, and they go, oh, yeah, that's big. Okay, uh, we're going to wash this out with antiseptic. <laughs> and she's like, what? But she knew. She knew that was the remedy. And she let them wash it out, and she let them repair it and put butterflies on it, and, and she's fine now. She's young. The scar just went away like in a year. Uh, but th- this is us, right? We, we want to hide the sin, right? But if, if God is converting us, God is, is bringing us, birthing us into the kingdom, one of the things that, one of the ways we know that that's happening is that we're willing to confess that sin to God in our need for a Savior. And we bring that into the, into the light. So we've answered these first couple of questions, right? We've answered both question one and question two. How does this happen, this true belief? It happens as a supernatural work of the Spirit. What is it we have to believe? We have to believe that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. You've got to believe that, right? It's not just belief in belief. It's belief in, in the truth about who Jesus is and what He's done for us. Now, third question is, okay, if that's really happened... If I'm born again, if I'm in the kingdom of God, however you want to say it, then what's the result of that? What will be the fruit of that that would indicate that I'm actually born again? We have to go to the end of the chapter for that. So go right to the end of chapter 3, verse 34, kind of a recap. It says, for whom God has sent, utters the words of God, and he gives the spirit without measure. All right? Word and spirit. So he's, he's talking about the truth claims of the sin and the need for a Savior. He's talking about the work, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Both of those things ha- have to be happening, right? And, but then he goes on, and he says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What? I thought it was just about belief, right? I read that last verse again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What he's saying is those that have experienced true belief will obey. They will obey. If you are born again, you will obey. Now, you won't be perfect, but you'll be in an ever-increasing experience of growth in the area of obedience to Jesus. That is the result. That's why it says, if you're not obeying, the wrath of God is still on you. And the answer to that is not, okay, I need to try hard to obey, and then the wrath of God might get off of me. No, what you do is you go back to step one, and you believe, right? It's your sinner in need of a Savior. And if if you're believing that, and and the, the, the work of the Spirit is regenerating you, you will have an ongoing, growing obedience in your life. This is the result of someone who is born again. This kicks against some of the, the wrong theologies that have been uh, believed in the church off and on different times throughout the centuries. I mean, it definitely kicks against the culture idea of just sort of faith in faith. Like, you have faith. Oh, good, you have faith. That's so good. That, like, no, 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 faith in something, right? There's truth claims here that, that are, are real and true and happened in history, and I believe in those truth claims. That, that's, that's huge, right? But also, but in the church, it's like that, that it's more than, it's not just belief in, 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 in truth claims, right? It's, it, it's not this sort of cheap grace theology. We're like, okay, sweet, I've checked all the boxes on all the correct beliefs. Now I can just live any way I want. If that's your attitude, you don't, you don't get it. You, you haven't had that experience where, where you understand that you're bitten by sin and you have no hope. And that you discover the only hope you have is, is the remedy of Christ. Like, like if you've been there, then, then you don't want to go back to the sin that put Christ on the cross. Right? You want to grow. You want to repent. You want to be trained in righteousness. You're not, not perfect. Don't hear me saying that. But there, there's a, a growth of obedience that comes out of a, of a person's life that is truly born again. It also kicks against this kind of sacramental theology. And some of you may have, have grown up in that, where the idea of, well, I'm in the church, I'm taking sacraments, I'm, I've been baptized, I'm taking the Lord's Supper, I'm in, <laughs> And how I live, that's not really the point. Like, I'm, I'm in church and I'm receiving grace. It's, no. Verses like this kick against that. Like, no, no, no. If, you, if you're born again, you've been transformed by the Spirit and you've come to believe that you're a sinner in need of, of, of a Savior, you're going to be growing in Obedience, this is the fruit that comes from the root of actual transformation that's happening by the power of the Spirit. So the command here, think about this, he's saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's a command. That's a command. That's a command to you and to me. You must be born again. Again, and if the, the Lord is, is working on you this morning and, and he's, he's compelling you 
to receive this grace that comes through the cross of Christ and to receive the remedy that you've come to believe is the only remedy for your sin, then, then, then receive that. You, you, you are being born again. <laughs> you can't receive that by faith unless the Lord is working on you in that way, in a supernatural way. Now, some of us are, are kind of like Nicodemus. I was a Nicodemus growing up. I thought because I had ritual and I was a pretty good kid, had, had, had moral to some degree, I thought, I'm in. And it took people helping me understand the gospel to realize, oh, no, I'm not in because I haven't received this forgiveness personally for my sin. I haven't acknowledged my sin and my need for a Savior. I haven't had that moment where I realize I'm absolutely desperate for what Christ is offering me. And when, I, when that clicked for me and I was a senior in high school, it, it changed. It changed. And there was a sense of going from darkness to light, to being from blind to being able to see, from, from relating to people uh, in ways that were selfish to relating to people that uh, it, it was actually selfless in some ways. And it, again, it wasn't perfect, but, but there was a change that happened when I came to believe the gospel, right? And so for some of you that maybe have grown up in religious homes, you've grown up in, in church, you know that that hasn't happened for you. Perhaps Christ is calling you to acknowledge your sin before him this morning and receive him as your savior. And I would encourage you to do that, to cry out to him in prayer this morning and receive that forgiveness and to enter into that relationship with him. He's calling you into this new born again experience in the kingdom of God. Now, for those of us that um, we, we've had that experience and we, we've, we've had an ongoing experience of transformation and we, we kind of have a sense that, and, and the, the more that that happens, the more it kind of gives us some confidence. So like, yeah, like, I do know God and, and God's Spirit is living in me and this kind of ongoing transformation is, is, is helpful to us. Um, but it's so much of a default for us to shift in that old way of thinking and living whereby we're depending on ourself. We forget what it was like in, that, in those initial moments or initial days when we were absolutely, utterly dependent on Jesus for grace. And what's, what's true is that from that point forward, we were in need of an IV drip of grace from Jesus. Sometimes we say as Christians, we were saved we are being saved, we will be saved, right? We're going to be on IV drip of, of grace from Jesus throughout our days on earth. Every moment we need that in order to live this life that he's calling us to. But you know what? We're going to even be on IV drip in eternity. That, that, that grace is going to sustain us for eternity. That's how desperate we are for the grace of God. And that Christian maturity is figuring out, how do I open up that IV drip through faith to get more of that grace in order to live a life I could never live on my own power? And so it's totally counterintuitive to, to how we think about maturity. We think about maturity as independence. Like, okay, hey, God, thanks for helping me out those first few weeks, months, couple years. I got it now. I'm good. No, no. Now, if you're a maturing Christian, you, you, you're realizing in an ongoing way, I need more grace, partly because he's calling you to, to areas and, and, and 
obediences that are, are greater and require more grace and more grace and more grace until to the point where you're like, every little breath is, oh, I need grace, oh, I need grace, oh, I need grace, oh, I need grace. That's, that's what he built you to live. That's what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden in the created order. And by God's grace given to us at the cross, he has brought us back to that kind of an existence, or at least he's training us to live like that. We're reminded of that IV drip every time we come to this table. Think about it. This thing that Jesus has instituted that he wants his church to do, it involves food. Now, I like food, okay? And food is something that we need. Like, it's sustenance. And so there's a reason why Jesus chooses food to, to institute this particular ordinance. And, and, and so he's letting us know that unlike baptism, which is a one-time thing where we profess our faith and we profess that we have had a born-again experience, that our old life is dead and we've been rebirthed, and now we're living a new life in the power of the Spirit, right? But, but then as the church, we continue to do this week in, week out, week in, week out, week in, week out. We do this every week. And part of that is to remind us of the need of the ivy drip of grace that comes through the gospel, through the cross of Christ. And so we're reminded of that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. As he took bread, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He knew human beings would be so apt to go independent Right? That our default would be to go back to, I can do this. I don't need the IV drip. Take that thing out. I'm done. I, I can do this. But no. No. Every time we take communion, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need grace. I need grace more now than I did when I became a Christian, or at least I'm more aware of it. Right? And in the same way, he took the cup. After he blessed the cup, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of of sins. This is why he came. Yes, he's an example, right? Yeah. But that's not the main reason he came. He came in the flesh so that he could die a death so that we could be forgiven of sins. And, and we could be, have the remedy of the sin sickness that we have, that we had no hope. We had Band-Aids, you know, slap it on there. But that wasn't doing it. And so it required a greater remedy, an intercessor that would be willing to die in our place. And we look to the very thing that's killing us, death itself, on the cross, except that death has hope because that death is the death of a perfect sacrifice. And so through faith in that, belief in that, we come to know Christ. So you, if, if you're here this morning and you're hearing this and it's clicking for you, don't hesitate. Open up the hands of faith. Receive that forgiveness. Enter into that relationship with God today. And if that's where you're at, we encourage you to come up here in a minute and take the bread, take the cup as a way to acknowledge that, that you're, you're on the IV drip. Yeah! That's going to last all the days of your life and throughout eternity. If you're here, you're just beginning to maybe investigate the faith. You, you're just starting to kind of understand some of it, ask some questions. Maybe you've been talking to a friend. You know you're not there yet. I'm encouraging you in this time to just remain in your seat and to think about what you're hearing, pray, and then keep the conversation going. I'll be up here after this service. I'd love to talk. 
Uh, maybe there's a friend here that you know that you could continue that conversation. But during this particular time, if you just remain in your seats. And others of us who have come to that place where we realized our sickness was something worse than a snake bite and that the remedy needed was the cross of Christ. If we've come to that place and God has, has regenerated us and, and we are his followers, we're in his kingdom, then I encourage you to come and dine at the kingdom table right? and to be reminded you're on the IV drip of grace every moment. Let's pray. Lord, you, you're such a good father. You, you love us. And even though we don't seem to get how desperately we need you, you, you keep calling us back. You keep reminding us through your word, through challenging experiences, suffering that we experience, that we desperately need you. And so, Father, just, this has been a great reminder, I think. I know it has been for me, but for others in the room, Lord, that uh, you, you are our only hope, both when we first became Christians, but, but now even more we realize it. And so thank you for the grace of the gospel. And we pray, God, that as we take the bread and the cup, Lord, we would meet with you, that this wouldn't be some sort of Band-Aid ritual that we just patch on the snake bite, but it'd actually be an expression of true belief, saving faith. And that, Lord, we would grow in that faith and for some to come to believe for the first time this morning. And so bless the bread, bless the cup, and just meet us in these moments as we sing, as we take the bread and cup, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.